Joe Biden just made his first visit to the Middle East as the US president. He may not be a stranger to the region, having visited dozens of times as vice president and as the senator for Delaware. But this is the first time since he took America's top job. And it comes at a time of uncertainty. Oil and food prices have surged since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and global inflationary pressure is pushing up prices. Talks with Iran on reviving the nuclear accord to limit Tehran's enrichment of uranium have stalled. And a tentative ceasefire in Yemen is holding, but there are major challenges in ending the more than five-year war. Energy and security might be top of his agenda, but so too is the fundamental question of America's role in the Middle East. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're looking at President Biden's visit to the Middle East and asking how it was received and how it will be remembered. Before we go any further, if you like Beyond the Headlines and want to get all the episodes as soon as they come out, then just hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And why not give us a review while you're there? Biden arrived in the region on July 13th, at a time when America's relations with several long-standing allies in the Middle East were arguably at something of a low ebb. After taking office, he described Saudi Arabia as a pariah state. He blocked $130 million in military aid for Egypt. In March 2022, the UAE's ambassador to Washington, Yusuf al said that relations with the US were undergoing a stress test. US forces are being drawn down in Iraq as they consolidate America's military footprint in the region and turn their focus to the war in Ukraine and the long-touted pivot to Asia. Meanwhile, the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks broke down over a decade ago, and there is no hope on the horizon of achieving a two-state solution anytime soon, even as Israel forges new ties with Arab states. President Biden himself has been frank about his visit to the region. He said he's heading to the Gulf looking to reassert the US role and its interests in the Middle East. The reason I'm going to Saudi Arabia, though, is much broader, is to promote U.S. interest. Promote U.S. interest in a way that uh, I think we have an opportunity to uh, reassert what I think we've made a mistake of walking away from, our influence in the Middle East. I'm going to be meeting with nine other heads of state. It's not just as happens to be in Saudi Arabia. And so there are so many issues at stake that I want to make clear that we can continue to lead in the region and not create a vacuum, a vacuum that is filled by China and or Russia against the interest of both Israel and the United States and many other countries. And the message, certainly from the Gulf, ahead of the trip was clear. Ties may be frayed, but there is a real opportunity to rebuild better. Saudi ambassador to Washington, Rima bin Bandar, wrote in Politico magazine the day Biden arrived in the kingdom to say that history has shown that the US and Saudi Arabia have emerged from every challenge stronger together and that the future should be no different. But her message is one that's been echoed again and again. 
Long gone are the days when US Gulf ties were about security in exchange for oil. Instead, she said, Saudi Arabia wants a partnership of equals, looking to address climate change, food security, development issues, empowerment and entrepreneurship together. Biden's opportunity to do that was at a summit of six GCC leaders, as well as Iraq's Mustafa al-Kadami, Jordan's King Abdullah and Egypt's President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. He also sought to strengthen relations in the first meeting of the newly formed I2U2 bloc, named after India, Israel, UAE and US. The group announced a plan for the UAE to fund $2 billion to build what they called high-tech food parks in India with US and Israeli assistance in a bid to boost food security. That plan is also about furthering the 2020 Abraham Accords that saw the UAE and Bahrain, followed by Sudan and Morocco, normalise relations with Israel. It marked the first Arab states to do so since Egypt in 1989 and Jordan in 1994. So the first visit to the region is something of a tightrope for Biden, looking to assure allies that America is committed to the region. One place, though, that he would have felt more comfortable of receiving a warm welcome was in Israel, a place he's visited over 10 times since he met President Golda Meir in 1973. I spoke to Willie Lowry, a correspondent in the Nationals' US Bureau, who was on the trip with the president and saw Biden's reception firsthand. The U.S. president has long espoused his love and devotion to Israel. It dates back to uh, his you know, early years as a U.S. senator uh, to 1973, I believe. And he called this trip a homecoming. And it certainly felt like that in many ways. Uh, the Israelis literally rolled out the metaphorical and literal red carpet for for the president upon his arrival at the airport in Tel Aviv. And it was just a really kind of warm and effusive reception uh, that he received with Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid, you know, thanking him for his visit and for the U.S.'s strong and continued support of Israel. It was interesting because we weren't quite sure how this would play out. Under Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel really warmed up to President Donald Trump, who, of course, uh, moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, essentially shut down relations with the Palestinians and and was kind of really quite hawkish in his support of Israel. And and Biden is, is certainly more restrained, but Israel has kind of basically done a Donald who and, and really embraced uh, the current president. Then, of course, remember that, that Joe Biden was the vice president when, when Obama announced a, a, a huge $38 billion over 10 years military aid package, the, the biggest in American history. So it's not maybe as simple to say Republican or Democrat, right? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And, and on this visit, they built off of that 2016 memorandum of, of understanding with a joint declaration of strategic partnership in which they reaffirmed that, that $38 billion. And they also, the US also explicitly laid out its devotion to uh, Israel and its insistence on protecting Israel from the Iranian threat. 
the wording in that was something to the effect of the U.S. will use the necessary elements of its power to deter Iran. So really quite strong wording from the, from, from the U.S. side. And just prior to uh, arriving in Israel, the, the president gave an interview with Israeli channel, News Channel 12, in which he said, as a last resort, the U.S. was prepared to use, use force against Iran, which is something that the Israelis have really been advocating for quite some time, at least the, their own right to use force against Iran and to, to kind of self-determine how they re- respond. Of course, this all happens as the uh, new indirect talks between the U.S. and Iranians over a new nuclear deal have really all but stalled. And the likelihood of a new JCPOA is kind of becoming less and less likely by the day. Despite that, uh, President Biden has said that he believes uh, diplomacy is the best way forward. Here's President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid talking about Iran's nuclear program. Today, you and I also discussed America's commitment to ensuring Iran never obtains a nuclear weapon. This is a vital security interest to both Israel and the United States, and I would add, for the rest of the world as well. I continue to believe that diplomacy is the best way to achieve this outcome. Words will not stop them, Mr. President. Diplomacy will not stop them. The only thing that will stop Iran is knowing that if they continue to develop their nuclear program, the free world will use force. Did you get any sense while you were there that the Israelis were hoping for something a little bit more substantive? You know, Biden did recommit to Israeli sovereignty and security. It recommitted uh, American kind of uh, military establishment to defense cooperation. They were looking at, um, you know, anti-missile technologies, looking at even laser technologies that, that are being developed. But there wasn't a big package of aid, arms, there was no major, major kind of substantive announcement, maybe. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's, that's kind of what will define this trip. No major policy shifts or changes or, or announcements, uh, but kind of more gradual shifts. I spent the day wandering Jerusalem talking with uh, Israelis on the street uh, ahead of, of the, the president's arrival. And, and they really had little expectations and little hope that that anything truly substantive w- would happen. They were appreciative of the fact that that the U.S. president was visiting, but not holding their breath that anything significant would take place. What they were hoping would happen was that on this trip, Biden, President Biden would be able to further improve relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And that appears to 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 be happening. The White House announced that Saudi Arabia had agreed to allow uh, all civilian uh, airplanes into its space. That's something that Israel has wanted for for years. That means that Israeli planes can now fly to Saudi Arabia. This is a pretty significant improvement upon relations between the two countries. Of course, it's not a full normalization, but a, a step in the right direction in the eyes of of the Israelis. And of course. This kind of brings us on to the next point. You know, Saudi Arabia has said previously that whilst other Gulf states, other Middle Eastern states have now, with the Abraham Accords, established diplomatic relations with Israel, 
they are still committed to the 2000 Arab Initiative that includes a two-state solution with you know, East Jerusalem as the capital of a future Palestinian state. So where was, was this conversation about peace talks uh, during Biden's visit? So President Biden is, you know, a, an avowed two-state solutions uh, person. He believes that is the only way for, for both uh, the Israeli and Palestinian people to kind of live in harmony and, and peace. And he stated that on numerous occasions. That being said, the peace process doesn't exist at the moment. And the Palestinian people are really far down on the U.S.'s list uh, while, while in Israel and the West Bank. To give you a sense, they flew the White House press corps out of Israel before the president even got to the West Bank. So only the pool was there to cover. That really limits any kind of difficult questions that may be presented to the president. And I think it's a reflection of really how low regard they view the Palestinian issue at the moment. You know, that being said, they did commit over $300 million in, in aid and funding to, to the Palestinian people. But, you know, that's really, that's a band-aid on a gunshot wound. That is, you know, not nearly kind of enough. It is obviously an improvement off of Donald Trump, who essentially severed ties with the Palestinian Authority. Uh, but it, it is only the beginning. Here's what Biden had to say about the peace process. Greater peace, greater stability, greater connection. It's critical. It's critical, if I might add, for all the people of the region, which is why we'll, be, we'll discuss my continued support, even though I know it's not in the near term, a two-state solution. That remains, in my view, the best way to ensure the future of equal measure of freedom, prosperity, and democracy for Israelis and Palestinians alike. Do you get the feeling that, that this trip by Biden was more of a, you know, certainly for the White House, a, a course correction, returning to essentially the status quo pre-Trump? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. It was kind of putting the hand on the tiller and bringing it, the Middle East back into the fold and saying, you know, you're still important to us. We care about what happens in this part of the world, and we want to be your kind of biggest ally, but we're not in a position to do anything drastic. And I think that we saw that while he was in Israel. They were working on the minutiae rather than the big, grand uh, deals. And so I think that this trip will be remembered. There were no fireworks while, while in Israel. And I don't think that was necessarily unexpected, but President Biden is not really going to go back to the U.S. with any major wins. And then, of course, this kind of brings us on to the second leg of his trip. A lot of those concerns about the role of Iran, about regional security, about stability, about inter-regional relationships are also pretty top of the agenda when he's in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, absolutely. Iran was front and center throughout his trip to the Middle East. It drove a lot of the policy agenda, a lot of the discussions between President Biden and, and his uh, counterparts in the region. Almost all of it devoted to the fact that of shoring up support in the region, trying to bring everybody together to counter the Iranian threat without exacerbating the situation, if that makes sense. But already we're seeing a slightly different tone out of the Gulf, right? We, we saw, you know, and, and 
Israel, as you pointed out, has long been been urging the West and particularly America to take a more hawkish stance to Iran, saying, you know, don't take military options off the table. Um, you know, there needs to be a confrontation against Iran. But already the tone from the Gulf is is a little bit more diplomatic, maybe. And Marga Gash, the advisor to the president in the UAE, recently said that the UAE was not interested in joining an axis against Iran. And this follows what the UAE has has been saying for the last several years. You know, I think a lot of the Gulf countries, while they're incredibly uncomfortable with Iran, and they certainly don't want the Iranians to develop a nuclear weapon, they also realize that they're neighbors and they want to find a diplomatic solution. They, they want to talk things through as opposed to the Israelis' uh, perhaps more pugilistic instincts. Absolutely. And certainly with the UAE is talking about putting an ambassador back in Tehran. That's really sort of seeing, you know, a, a bit of tangible movement on that diplomatic front, potentially. And then, of course, we've had several months of officials from Saudi Arabia, from Iran, meeting in Iraq with Iraqi officials to try and kind of, you know, maybe slowly start some corridors and, and some, some avenues to having uh, sort of an interregional conversation about Iran's place within, within the Middle East. What does Biden have to do here? I know many uh, the American people would probably prefer him not to be here. And, and a lot of them have viewed this trip as kind of unnecessary. But I think he views his role as a kind of moral compass and a bridge between Israel and, and it, Arab states. And, and while he's not about to announce anything equivalent to the Abraham Accords, which of course, you know, really reshaped the region, he wants to make sure that the relationships fostered from the Abraham Accords are kind of maintained and improved and wants to try and bring others into the fold when and where possible. And I think a big part of this trip for him is to strengthen the bonds between uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia. You know, these are two big players uh, in the region. And the announcement uh, that Israeli planes would be able to fly to Saudi Arabia is really, you know, quite significant. And, and I think a small but important win for the U.S. president. And, and I think that little by little, he's going to kind of chip away and try and continue to foster those relations between the two countries. And then, of course, you know, there are also the second part of this, which is despite maybe not wanting to be too hawkish on Iran, there are a lot of conversations around US Gulf security cooperation. I mean, the UAE has been looking to buy um, F-35 advanced stealth fighter jets, and they've been looking at, you know, beefing up missile defense systems uh, with, with American support. We saw early in 2022, drones and rockets fired by Houthi rebels in, in Yemen, um, caused damage to oil facilities and loss of life in the UAE. And that, that worried a lot of people. So there is this conversation as well about the US kind of military cooperation. The president wants a Middle East air defense alliance, essentially, that will be able to protect against Iran and, and the Houthis and, and any threat by air. And, and I think that's something that he's trying to shore up on this trip. Uh, I don't know if he expects to walk away with that, but I, I think he hopes to be uh, much closer to it than when he arrived. One of the other sort of background issues maybe to all of this is 
Is also the role of China and Russia in the Middle East in the last few years becoming a lot more engaged and building real kind of, I mean, physical and you know, metaphorical bridges with the Gulf? Hugely. I think that the president views China as America's biggest competitor and long-term threat. And his decision to come here is in large part to, as you said, reassert the US's influence uh, in the region. It, it's, you know, he's here to say, hey, I know you're friends with Russia and China, but don't forget where you're better friends. And when the you know going gets tough, we're the ones who will be here for you, even though that's not necessarily always been the case. But I think that he, you know, he sees the changing world and the more and more precarious position that the US is in, you know, and he does not want the the US to kind of lose its grip on power as the world's, you know, major uh, superpower under his watch. Um Willie, I guess the other thing that I just want to hear a bit about is what goes into the logistics of a presidential visit to the Middle East. I shudder to think what it would be like to be on the president's staff or or adjacent staffs during a visit like this. It is a monumental effort and, and a logistical nightmare. You know, just from the the press corps perspective, they're figuring out plane charters, airport transfer charters, hotel rooms, and you're dealing with 80 to 100 people. What often looks like on the faces of the the, the very nice, uh, often embassy staffs, like a big headache. Um, but you know, that being said, while things don't necessarily run efficiently, they you know, everything eventually gets done. From a security perspective, it's of course, a huge effort as well. You know, the the president's detail uh, convoy uh, flies over with him. Dozens and dozens of Secret Service come beforehand to do uh, pre-trip sweeps. It's just a huge undertaking and no other country in the world really does it. You know, I was speaking to another, uh, to a colleague and, and he said, you know, when you, when you see a presidential trip, you're, you're seeing America's soft power uh, in action, you know, just the sheer fact that it brings over almost a hundred journalists just to see what one person does, albeit a very, very important one. And was there anything, you know, remarkable about the plane you flew over in? It's just a regular charter flight. In our case, it was a Delta, but they deck it out with kind of White House accoutrement, if you will. They're little White House headrests. You get a, quite an elaborate menu with with multiple meals all on white house uh, letterhead and you walk in and the stewards you know are profusely nice offering you anything you want there is a, an entire row filled with chips and candy bars and snacks that you can pick up before you take your seat and the pilot does not come on and say put your seat rests up and your table rest up uh, you just basically you sit down and he says, we're taking off and you take off. But it, it is definitely quite an experience. So Biden didn't take home any major policy announcements or changes, but his visit did go some way to assuring Washington's partners that America was engaged and was serious about its long-term commitments. He demonstrated clearly that Israeli support wasn't based on a Republican or a Democrat being president, but it would be unwavering throughout. 
When it comes to mending fences in the Gulf, that improvement might not be immediate. But his visit will certainly have gone some way towards making the region's leaders feel heard and understood. Thanks this week to Willie Lowry from inside the White House press pool in Saudi Arabia. We were hosted this week by me, James Haynes-Young, and produced by James Haynes-Young, Erica L. Kershey, and Arthur Edison. If you want to get all the latest beyond the headlines, hit subscribe in your podcast app, and why not leave us a review while you're there? <laughs>